anybody there? Yeah, hello. Hey, good morning or afternoon. Hi, Jaime. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really thrilled to get to chat about your latest work, which is Tell Me What You See. It's a pretty awesome collection of work that I had the pleasure of reading this week. So uh, before we get the ball rolling on this one, though, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about where you come from, because if I'm not mistaken, you're from Kentucky, right? But transplanted to New York? Correct. Yes. Um, I'm originally from Sinking Fork, Kentucky, which is a community in the rural western part of the state, so small that uh, the way my grandfather talked, they took the post office away when he was young, but they actually took it away when his father was young. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's where I'm originally from. And then I've lived in Manhattan for about eight years now. Mm. And I've also lived in Washington, D.C. and a couple of spots in France. Oh, wonderful. So can we take a moment to dwell on Kentucky for a little bit? I'm you know, I was raised in a small town in Wyoming, you know, Mexican guy in, in the West. So it's it's something that is very dear to my heart. How do you feel like you found your footing there if you ever did in Kentucky? Was it uh, was there a good feeling of home there or was it a place that you wanted to escape or get away from? Is it possible to say both? Yes, that's my favorite and, answer. <laughs> yeah. And I would have said, like, it's funny, like, cause there, there are a lot of questions in there and, um, you know, it's like, I'm on a business trip. So there's part of me, I'm right now, um, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the Hilton. So if you hear any odd sounds, they're not me, they're not in my home. They're a neighbor here at the Hilton Columbus, um, where I am for work. So I wanted to say, let's unpack this because, you know, I'm in this business speak, but please do not ever let me say anything like that on an arts podcast. <laughs> but if we were to go back and break down the multiple questions um, that you asked, you know, about like finding my grounding and finding my feet, um, my mother would have told you that I was born fully fledged like Athena, you know, so like I found those immediately. And, you know, and it's funny, like we don't even think about having to find our feet with where we're originally from because that's just where we're automatically planted. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a plant coming up from the ground. You know, it doesn't have to find its roots. You know, the roots and the seed were there first. Mm. So part of me will always be Kentucky, but you're right to where there's very much this balance. And um, there's a lady named Dr. Shay Parton out of Purdue University who has started a rural young adult movement. And she uses the term rural out migrant for people who are very much from and of the rural environment where they grew up, but they've, they've left. And so there's part of me like being here, I'm in Columbus for work and um, this hotel is next to a mall and the mall is sprawling and people are saying, excuse me when they're not anywhere near me. And in New York city, if someone you don't know speaks to you, they're crazy. (laughs) And so I'm looking at these people like, why are you talking to me? You know, like, is this person crazy and going to attack me, you know? And, you know, and then, and then they're looking at me like, are you crazy? Why are you looking at me like that? And, you know, I mean, and there are differences from Kentucky to Ohio, but I called my mom and I was like, mom, there's so much space. I'm freaking out. And my mom, just breathe. And she's like, I know that Ohio isn't home, but when you come home, you adapt to all the space just fine. You know, you adapt to complete strangers telling you in the grocery, you shouldn't get that. That cereal is horrible, you know, and <laughs> because that's the culture that I'm from, you know, so it's, it's funny as to when I'm a Kentuckian and when I'm a New Yorker. And that is one of the themes that I think does very much pop out in the book. So I'm glad that you were able to pick up. Makes me feel good as a writer that you as a reader were able to pick up on that. So yeah, thank yeah. you. And there's so many amazing threads in this collection because I thank was you. I was sitting there wrapping it up a couple of days ago. And just this general idea of, of distance, which is one that I'm obsessed with, and especially the pieces that uh, dabbled in the pandemic. And that were set in in that situation, I can't imagine being in New York at the real core of of what we experienced, you know, a couple of years ago. That I think you captured it very. I mean, I wasn't there, you know. I can just say, you know, from what I read and what I saw on the internet, yeah. you captured it so strongly and it was so vivid, especially some of the devices that you used. And I think this might be a good time to just dive in because I, I feel like I, I got a lot you know, to talk about in terms of the, the book. Thank you. But let's talk about, tell me what you see. And if we could set the stage a little bit and maybe you could tell me a bit about how this comes out 
in terms of a manuscript and, and how you arrive yeah. at these pieces and, and being what they, what they were as a manuscript? Yeah, it's funny. It's, um, it's, it's, you get that question a lot and it makes sense because we're looking at an experimental collection that has so many different forms in it. Like one story that I think may be the one you're talking about on contrasting Kentucky and New York, the entire story takes place on the main character's phone. So like there are texts and there are memes or memes, depending on how you say it, you know, an emoji and stuff like that. And so it's a very natural question to ask, but I, I've never found a way to answer it without spoiling one of the stories. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. But basically, um, well, there are 10 stories in it, so I won't tell you which one. And maybe that will help us keep from having spoilers. And then also, you know, I mean, it's it's the answer. So it's out there in the in the universe. But there is a story in there about the attack on the U.S. Capitol, January 6th. And I have a very, very, very good friend who is a member of Congress. Mm. And I thought I saw her cowering on the floor at that, that moment in time where you saw them having to barricade the house doors mm. and the men trying to get through with the guns. And then the camera passes. And, and I thought I saw her laying by where she usually sits on the floor. Oh, goodness. And it just... You know, like as an American, that was a harrowing day. Yeah. But as somebody whose whose friend was in that building, you know, and it's funny because then when they were evacuating them, my mom thought that she saw her. Oh. You know, her then fiance thought that she saw her. Now she wasn't there. She was safe in the Raymond building. But, you know, it's like we had all of these people who were in her life who thought that they saw her. And that made me angry on a much, much higher level. And as an American, that's a day I don't think we can let go until full justice is served. And, mm -hmm. you know, I believe that justice is gradually being served through different arrests and indictments and things like that. Yeah. But as a friend, I just stayed at this very heightened level of anger. Mm -hmm. And I had to write about this. And it wasn't the kind of livable anger. I mean, I feign to call it livable that we'd all been living with for two to three years. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it was a palpable, every single conversation I had, why are we not talking about this? Yeah. Why are we not doing this? And, you know, and it got to where people in my life were like, we're upset too. We just want to know where you want to go eat tonight. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know but, but it was one of those things, Jaime, where I had to write about it. And that was the only way that I was not going to blow up. <laughs> yeah. Like physically. Yeah. And I also knew though that it could not, there's no Freitag pyramid about that day. You know, there's no, you know, and then, and then Haley goes to work and she's bright and she's young and she's chipper and, you know, she wants to help America. And then we've got a narrative hook. There are men with guns. Ooh, <laughs> interesting. I'm hooked. You know, rising. They enter the capital. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't write about crazy things in a non-crazy manner. And so I started thinking, how do I write that story? You know, how do I write? And I knew it needed to be fiction, but it was like, how do I write about January 6th? And I was like, well, it's got to be experimental. It's got to be something like not just away from front. Like a lot of flash does not follow Freitag, mm. you know, but those are still traditional forms. Yeah. And I was like, it's got to be something brand new because that day was brand new. You know, mm -hmm. it's got to be something the way that the story is actually put together structurally starts to instill that fear and that horror of the day um you know not necessarily horror as a genre but you get what i'm saying yeah you know? yeah and if i may add there and this is something that was pervasive through the whole through the whole piece i thought that you did a phenomenal job of of creating this sense of of tension that that Thank was you. just constantly building through various forms various genres i think that that's something that was very unique to this but to your point about writing about something that is so charged, that is so difficult to talk about, that yeah. may seem structureless uh, to some degree, which is honestly, even to this day, you look at what happened and you're like, how? Right. How could this go from right. point A to point B to point C? And the way that you wrote it, and I'm not going to spoil anything, I hope, is to find a, a visual parallel and to find a situation that sort of mimics that kind of thing on a personal level, which I thought was very, very yeah, clever. Uh, and 
I'm, I'm going to leave it right there because I don't want to yeah. <laughs> dabble. Exactly. It's one of those stories you, you desperately want to talk yeah. about it, but yeah. it's kind of like, I don't know. When I was in the ninth grade, we did Romeo and Juliet. And by the ninth grade, like most people usually haven't read it yet, but you know the drill. Yeah. And it's funny because we'd read like the first act and we were discussing it in class. And then the teacher goes, you know, this really makes sense when you think about the fact that they die at the end. And this girl in the corner went, they die at the end. <laughs> And it's, and it's like, and everybody turned around and we were like, how did she not know that? You know, but none of us had read it ever. And it's like, you know, it's like, you don't want to take away the joy of, well, I mean, I was about to say, or just the joy of the reading experience of that one person in the world who mm. didn't know yet that yeah. they die at the end. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the shock of like seeing Juliet raise up. <laughs> but it's funny because I had never really written experimental before, or I'd never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I'd had an unpublished Dream of Consciousness novel, which some people called experimental, but I'm like, Catherine Ann Porter existed, so it's not experimental, you know, because it's not an experiment. I'm not doing anything new. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'd never written it before, and I knew that if I just started with that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be good mm -hmm. because the capital was huge. Like you were talking about, like even as a nonfiction narrative, it didn't even make, like they stopped halfway through the day and went and ate tacos. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, so really, bizarre, like, yeah. It's like, well, we're going to storm the Capitol, then we're going to eat cop tacos, then we're going to kill a Capitol guard. You know, yeah. like, like it's, it's on just, the planner. No Didn't you get the agenda? It, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, and now we're learning that there actually was an agenda. You know, like it's just, yeah, it's just crazy. You know, it's like storm the Capitol, go to Chipotle. Like it's just, I don't know. You know, but anyway, it may not have been Chipotle. You know, so if you're listening at home, please stop boycotting Chipotle because of my statement. Yeah, but uh. <laughs> I started with like other things and I was like, well, what else is crazy? You know, what else can't be told straight? And so that's how the COVID about the, the Kentucky versus New York living during COVID on the character's phone that we were talking about earlier. You know, like I did a choose your own COVID adventure that did not make it in the collection where no matter what choice you made, you died. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? cross is a little a little flippant to be so yeah. soon <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i think uh there was also a wonderful balance here of taking something that feels so impersonal so separated removed from the the humane point of view which i think now we we are desensitized from a lot of these things and one of the things that that works really well in this collection is how human how first person everything feels especially in the context of, of these massive things that we could very easily push away and dismiss and say, no, this, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not in New York or I'm not here or there. A lot of these larger issues become personal. And I, I thought that was just such an elegant way to deliver that and something that I'm obsessed with because I know that we have to talk about these things, but I don't want a stump speech every single piece of fiction that I read. You know, like I want something that can reel me in in some way through an emotional component and then really give us what what it is and i wanted to ask you this is sort of like a long-winded question here but you have a background in journalism or, or writing is that is that right uh for um it's more of a middle ground but okay. i uh, it's it's funny because every now and again like i'll talk to a friend from college who i haven't talked to in two or three years and she's like so what are you doing for a living now you know <laughs> Like I've just, I've just always kind of changed my job. I think the longest that I've been in any single occupation is 10 years. Um, but I did, like I owned a translation company at one point. Um, I owned a, a machine learning, which now everybody's calling AI, but there is a difference. A visual recognition company that I started at one point. You know, so I've done everything, but I've always been a writer. Um, mm -hmm. So I was, or I was a freelance reporter with Washington Post, The Guardian, places like that for about maybe two and a half, three years in there. And then um, I've always, with my other roles, I've always just kind of written, you know, like business articles and stuff. So okay. I was, I yeah, was going to, so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to try to ask you about that because one of the things that I loved about some of the, the stories in here was how there was a sense of, I want to say there was a grounding in a kind of research, perhaps there was a rigor there that, Paired with a human part of it, of, of the characters, you felt like there was an, uh, a real groundedness to even like the fictions or the far flung mm -hmm. things that you were writing about. I felt grounded in 
a kind of research. And I'm curious if you felt that way, especially if you're when you were writing some of the the almost sci-fi pieces that you have in in here. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, if you could explain that relationship of those two elements. Well, it's funny. It's because you made a comment earlier about it feeling first person. And like those two compliments together have just made this like my favorite interview either. <laughs> but one of the biggest, like, you know, like when, like I still, I still send short stories to journals and, you know, when you do get that personal rejection that has like a one sentence as to why we did not like this. Yeah. Um, I don't mean the journals that are obviously leading people on that say, you know, resubmit to everybody. And then yeah. it's obvious like the fifth time you submit, you're like, oh, their format is rejection paragraph, one line compliment. Thank you. So-and-so. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean those, but like when you do get the, like some of the rejections that I get back are saying that it feels too journalistic, mm. but to me, I'm not able to write in first person. Um, and part of that, there is a first person flash piece in here mm-hmm. um, that everybody kept, like I kept getting rejections on it from journals saying, you know, this is a lovely essay. And I'm like, it's short fiction. That's why I sent it to you. Mm. And, it's in first person. Um, so part of why I don't do first person is because um, people think it's about me. Mm. And like with that particular story in the book, she spends like three weeks in the bathtub without getting out. And I'm like, so if that were about me, I'd be dead and unable to submit this. <laughs> but, um, but another part is that it's really, I won't say it's really hard for me emotionally, but we live in such an emotionally strong time that I personally am on overload. And mm. so third person removedness, and you hear people make this argument that you can't get close enough to the character with third. But when you just said that it feels like first person, that tells me, yes, you can. Yes. You know, like, yeah. like, like in the story you're talking about when you're asking about research, mm-hmm. someone that popped in my mind, it's called Privacy Station. And yes. it is about two scientists who pretty much orbit the year as part of a reality TV show, trying to basically bring back plant life and food to you know, a world that, that has, has pretty much depleted it um, with climate change and other matters. And it's in third person, but it, you think about like what it depicts of those characters' lives, it's one of the more intimate, I think it's probably the most intimate story in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that it's like you can, like to me, I don't know, like like when you get some of that first person, it's like so, 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 almost like Marcel Proust and everybody's thoughts, you know, that to me almost pulls me out as a reader because I shut off because I'm like, like it's like the reason I'm not on Instagram. I don't care what you ate last night. <laughs> I'm sorry, like eat your own food. Like I don't, I don't, you know, it's yeah, just, yeah. I've got enough own, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to know like that menial level, you know, but, uh, uh, but part of the way that I write and I don't think of it as intentionally creating removedness, but you have to have a distance sometimes to feel close because yeah. it's inside that distance that the reader is able to start applying to their own life and to start creating and constructing their own vision of what the setting, like in that case, like what the space station looks like. You know, yeah, like I say that yeah. there's a tub. You know, I say that there's a table. I say that there are dishes, but uh-huh. what color they are is up to you, you know? Yeah. And so, but I do, you have readers who they get pulled out. So I do research stuff. And it's funny that you mentioned it. I do that a lot more after being a journalist than I did before. Mm, okay. And it's, it's because people get pulled out. Like, like say they're botanists and say you are a botanist and you're like, oh my gosh, you would never use, you know, the whatever scissors for that. <laughs> you know, like my mom, my mom is one of those readers, mm. like where she'll pull out and, um, you know, and they do it with movies and that kind of thing. And so I always kind of research those details to make sure that they're right so that yeah. you don't want that where you lose a reader. Um, and then also I learn a lot about the characters that way. Cause I'm having to get to know these people before I write them. And I don't mean in the Twitter, what's your character's favorite color ice cream hashtag writing community way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the way that like, I'm even getting to know you through this call mm-hmm. and the way that listeners are getting to know both of us. And, you know, and to me, if their job is a prominent part of the story, 
I need to kind of understand what they do for a living, like you would a friend. Yeah. yeah. You know, to write them. Yeah. So. And I, I do think that, uh, just to your point, uh, there was a moment with Aaron, one of the characters in, uh, yeah. in that I piece. Lovely. Um, they, I'm trying to find a way to phrase it because I really appreciated that there was a kind of devotion that could be found in the person's work that yeah. you, that you wrote about. And I think that you could only arrive at that kind of character conclusion if you went in and investigated and went down that rabbit hole of botany to understand this might be something that a person might find in that profession but at the at the surface level you can't really uncover that sort of work so how do you how do you go from finding the right amount of research versus like burying yourself in something that will send you down a rabbit hole that won't help anything and will just delay you i think part of it is the way that my mind works um i i have and i don't mean that i have attention deficit hyperactivity in the way that a lot of people just go oh i'm so ADD. like i'm clinically diagnosed with it Jaime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i was 15 i probably should have been diagnosed at three if mm -hmm. they were doing that for girls then yeah um i'm textbook and so i cannot i can rabbit hole on stuff um like i will hyper focus while writing but I hyper-focus more on a certain character and thinking of a story in the book called Fifth Fear, mm -hmm. where the rhythms are very different. And it's like, you know, like, like three hours is one day, one day is three hours, you know, or blah, 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 blah. And like, I start thinking like that. So I do rabbit hole that way. But like on the research, it's more research and write, research and write, research okay. and write. Opposed to like a historical fiction novelist who might, I don't know, like, like uh, my friend Tiffany Rice, she's a romance and erotica novelist, but she's got a historical romance. She went and spent like three weeks living in a lighthouse because her oh, character wow. is in time in a lighthouse. <laughs> like that's not me. That's that's not, you know, like for this privacy station story, I went to the library, you know, I got a book about plants and I just started flipping through it and looking at interesting phrases. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I Googled how, because there's like a paragraph, where it talks about on earth, you know, because of gravity, plants grow from underneath the ground, up through the ground, and then up toward the sky. But in space, like a plant, like, I don't know, like, say the branch of something, it circumnavigates itself because the gravity points are all different. Yeah. So like I did Google, you know, how do plants grow in space? You know, but I didn't spend, I probably didn't even spend an hour on it because the minute I saw that fact, I was like, oh, that's it. Yeah. And then my little ADHD self was, back on the horse track and running does that make sense? <laughs> yeah yeah and so i think you're typical i have no on earth i have no idea on earth how you would do it <laughs> right right but it, it really lends itself to to being a, a proper sorry i was going to say like a seed for a story and you know i'm going to be punning left and right uh but i do think like the beauty of that story is is that you did manage to find the balance and i think there was a degree of trust where you gave it enough space that that people needed to fill in the blanks in a really satisfying way because it's dense there's a there's a lot to kind of take in but that that was one of my favorite pieces and i think that you you did that research component very very um very well if we could go to the beginning one of the first pieces that you mentioned which was the um the portal story and uh i believe that one was yeah the fifth fear I really, I really appreciated sort of the way that you navigated this, this time dilation. And I, I thought it was a wonderful, you know, parallel to other things. And I don't want to say more to, to kind of not give away anything, but can we use that as an example to talk about how a story came to be from, from beginning to what you felt was a successful draft? Yeah. Um, that was actually a dream that I had. Oh, and okay. it's funny because you know, it's, we're coming from talking about Privacy Station. Privacy Station, the story about them orbiting space, that was also a dream. <laughs> and they're too markedly different. You know, like like Privacy Station, when I dreamt it, it actually had had like a narrative plot line. Mm. You know, sort of it was like watching a movie in my dream. And then The Fifth Fear, it's more like how Salvador Dali dreamt his paintings. Yeah. <laughs> like it just makes sense is a bunch of stuff kind of slopped together but um but i dreamt about what that story i hate to say, to say what that story is about because this really isn't it's you know it's about this as much as gone with the wind is about the civil war or sex in the city is about the 
Yeah. You know, but um, uh, which if you've never seen that movie or that show, they're not about the Civil War and sex, obviously. <laughs> but um, that story, there's a portal in it. I won't say it's about a portal, but there's kind of like a Stargate kind of portal that is in New York down where the river kind of hits the city. And that's what I dreamt about. And I dreamt about like the stairs and the people going in and out of it. And, you know, it's like all the shadow and darkness and that sort of thing. And when I woke up, I thought, well, I turned the other thing to a story. Maybe I can do that with this. But the form actually came from research. Um, like I knew that it was about fear because that was the emotion in the dream. And I knew that I wanted this big thing like on Stargate and a uh, much cooler movie than TV show, by the way. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But anyway, I started looking up just different things about fear and psychology and I found out about this kid named Douglas Marie that basically was used as a baby in psychological studies. And they took him from his mom at birth and told the mom he was dead oh, God. because like, the mom was poor, you know, and she may, they may have even been like a, minor, a minority or something, but it, there were some sort of circumstances like the mom may have been indigent. I don't remember. Um, I don't always retain a lot of the research, which I think helps me keep focused at the time mm -hmm. because I, I don't apply it or I keep going. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, then I found that there actually is a theory that is called the five fears and that all fears basically can be described down to one. I mean, sorry, down to five. Um, and I actually knew a gentleman who was a psychologist in my 20s who told me once that we only had one fear and that all other fears grew from it. You know, like if your fear is a fear of being hurt, then maybe you gradually become afraid of snakes or maybe you gradually become afraid of heights, you know, but your fear is actually of being hurt. Mm. And so I was going out looking for that and I found the theory, I believe that Carl Albrecht is the psychologist's name. And I was about to say, you can check it in the story, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's like the story is correct. That's fiction. <laughs> but he broke it down into five. And when I saw those, I was like, that makes sense with my dream. And, you know, and then I was looking and I was looking at everything that we all went through in Corona, like the final fear in the psychological fifth fear, um, not the story, but in the real life, all Brechtian five fears, the final one is extinction. And I was like, well, if you look at everything that we're afraid of at Corona, like one of them is ego or loss of self. We you know like people, like, like people who didn't want to wear masks, some of them were horrible people, not all of them were horrible people. Mm. You know, some of them just quite literally didn't want a government telling them what to do, which being from Kentucky, I can fully understand, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and with those folks, like that connects to ego or loss of self. Like they were afraid that they would lose their independent rights in the face of a, what they believed to be unilateral government. Mm -hmm. You know, now the ones that went and got tacos later, we'll just completely forget about. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, but when you looked at everything that we were afraid of at Corona, you're really not going to find anybody who they were really just afraid of the disease. They were afraid of dying. They were afraid of losing their loved ones. Mm -hmm. They were afraid of a government imposing them. You know, they were afraid of not having power and control over what was going on in their lives. Yeah. You know, I'm one of those people. I don't have to have power and control, but I have to know who has it. And I have to know that it's going down. You know, like I don't need it personally, but when I don't know what's going on, that's when I flip, you know, so um, that's when I just wound up taking it and I just kind of structured around it. And then I wrote from those five fears, trying to figure out what goes into what pockets. Yeah. And so, it, it's, it's such a, a beautiful piece. It's one of my favorites because of that. Yeah. I mean, again, just this idea that you can find structures around research and then you can, you can start to add the human element to it. And then you got something that really resonates because it's grounded in something. But I'm reminded of, I don't want to say it's a gift. It's probably a curse. I, I don't know. But the restlessness of a, of a mind like yours and how you, it seems like you found a way to use it to your benefit. Is that something creatively that you feel uh, is accurate? I tr yeah. And I mean, like, I'm glad to hear that you think it's to my benefit. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a little bit worried as a writer about career building because, 
you know, like like I've got a novel that's a, a novella that's coming out with First Bite Press next year that's actually erotica. Mm. Um, and then like I've got my stream of consciousness novel that I'm trying to get out there that some people have called a literary thriller. You know, so then the part of me that has owned two businesses, it's like at some point you should build a brand, mm. but uh, I can't write the same thing twice. Yeah. It's just not how I'm made. Uh-huh. And you see that in this collection, like, you know, like the privacy station, we were talking about outer space, it's slow. You know, it's something more that you would read like in plowshares, you know, or maybe even N plus one, mm-hmm. you know, whereas the, the fifth fear you know, that should have been in diagram, you know, or somewhere like that. And you don't think diagram and plowshares being the same sort of people. Right. right. I don't know. Maybe I can just empathize with that because, you know, I feel like it liberates you from thinking about genre and form the entire time that you're that you're doing something. And I just I I don't know, maybe I, I feel like writers restrict themselves a lot because of that need to build a brand. Because of the need to create a body of work that speaks to one identity when I maybe, you know, that's a misguided thing. Is is that a, a wrong kind of approach? I don't know. I don't. I think it depends on what I was going to say what you want in life, but I think it's more of what you need in life. And this, dear listener, is where we get into the business side of writing. Mm-hmm. But um, But to me, I don't need to be rich. We were raised without a whole lot. You know, my father drove a delivery truck for Coca-Cola and what he made at the end of the day depended on how much he sold off of the back of it. Mm. You know, and yeah. you know, he would come home having traded the Coke that was left on the truck with the fruit lay man for chips. You know, he came home one day with an entire crate full of marshmallow fluff, <laughs> you know, and you know, like whenever we had to do refreshments at school, like it was our turn, we brought Coca-Cola. You know, and we just, we just didn't, my mom's family were farmers. We just didn't have a lot. And I feign to say we were poor because my gosh, in rural freaking Kentucky, there were people who were a whole lot of hell more poor than we were. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, but for our area was middle class, but nationally was probably just borderline lower middle class. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've been poor. I'm not afraid of it. I don't like it, but I'm, I know how to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when you have, there are a lot of writers who do come from a background of economic privilege. There are a lot of writers who don't. In this industry, the ones who do tend to reputation-wise and stereotypically have an easier route to publishing. I don't think anybody's route to publishing is easy. But they do um, seem to have more family connections to agents and stuff like that. You know, they, at least those of us who were not raised with money, have the belief that those who were have more time to write. Maybe they don't. They've got relatives with cancer and babies to raise and other things going on in their lives too. Mm-hmm. But there is the impression that they have more time to write because they're like, when I was in college, I worked three jobs at a time, mm-hmm. you know, plus taking a course load, you know. Um, but I also found time to write because. You know, I was 18 years old and I could stay up until three with cigarettes and <laughs> LA, the most highly caffeinated soft drink you've ever had in your life yeah. made in Kentucky. But, uh, um, but it's funny because when I look at people who do kind of write the same thing, maybe they're boring people or maybe they're just making a living. And, you know, that's how you get people to read your second or third book and go back and read the other one. You know, like like I'm the kind of writer that somebody's going to read, tell me what you see. And if they love experimental, they're probably going to be disappointed when that first Bright Press book comes out. And it's pretty much just about sex. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know people who really want erotica, they're going to be like, what do you mean? There's only one sex scene and tell me what you see. And all it does is just say that he accidentally opened the bathroom door and didn't know she <laughs> And it ends. This is so disappointing. Yeah. I hate this writer. Throw yeah. it against the wall. You know, and for me, I don't, as long as I have enough to eat and I have a roof over my head and I have clothes on my back that don't have to be newer this season, but they do have to not have holes in them and look embarrassing. You know, as long as I have my daily needs, writing is more important to me than a new pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, writing is more important to me than sending my kids to private school and then go to public. I don't have kids, but I'm just trying to think of different examples, you know, that might impact 
people's lives. You know, we all make decisions. And I'm not saying that if you're not able to write because of economics, that it's not important to you. But, you know, I heard a sermon once where the preacher said that if you've got rocks, pebbles, and sand, the way that you can get all of them into the jug is if you put the rocks in first, and then you put the pebbles in, and then you put the sand, and the smaller items drop in around the big ones. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, like, but if you start with the sand, you'll never get in the pebbles or the rocks. And to me, writing is a rock. Mm. And so, you know, I live in a tiny studio. Now, I do live in New York. And if writing were more important to me than being in the city and having energy around me, I'd move back to Kentucky yeah. where, you know, what I spend on rent, not in my apartment now, but I just moved a month ago. In the apartment I was in before, I spent the same on rent that friends of mine from high school make a year. <sighs> you know, so obviously, yeah. you know, making personal financial decisions where I would have more time to write. But like I'm a book publicist and I only take on a limited number of clients because I have to protect my writing time. Yeah. Do I go out to eat? No. Do I go buy new clothes? No. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I don't want somebody to go out there and tweet and go, well, she just says we should all be naked and starving. <laughs> you're not a real writer because you're not naked and starving. Yeah. You know, please take me out of context here. You know, but you have to decide what in your life is rock. And in as much as you are able, do that first. And so some of these people that they're just writing the same thing over and over, they're making a living. Yeah. You know, and to me personally, and I'm not saying that doing that isn't real writing. Again, do not go out and tweet that I say that you have to be naked and hungry and eat, the, you know, write the same damn thing every time. You know, but to me, it's more important to write what I want than to go on a vacation, for example. Mm. You know, it's those are my personal artistic and financial decisions. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for that honesty, because it really affirms my personal belief on on these things, that there's just a, a huge breadth of what it means to be a writer. But as long as you're comfortable with the choices that you're making and as right. long as you're being honest about the kind of life that you want, it doesn't matter whether you're in Kentucky or New York or, you know, over here, wherever the hell I am, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I think it's a matter of accepting the the things that you have to work with and proceed. Because I think that, and just, you know, as as a quick side note, I felt like I lost a good 10 years of my life waiting for the right circumstances, waiting for things to change. But not really taking it upon myself to improve the situation so that I could flourish as a writer. And so, right. you know, I, I now come back to this, this feeling of like, you just got to, I love, I love this visual of the rocks. I, I think it's, it's something that I'm probably going to be taking a mental note of for a long time uh, moving forward. But um, if we could just talk about moving to New York and what that's done to sure quality of life. I know you, you kind of address that a little bit, but I, I think that that's a huge cultural shift. And I'm, I'm just curious on the change in perspective, because, uh, you know, you hear things about Kentucky, you, you kind of get a sense that, that you were kind of a fish out of water. Maybe not, maybe you were just made for the city and ready to go, but how does that inform who you are and what your writing became once you moved? Well, it's, it's funny. It's a. Uh, I actually am going home Wednesday back to Kentucky for a week, and you know, I told my mom a couple of weeks ago. I was like, because I've just finished another story that's really slow, like Privacy Station, and those are very hard for me to work uh, to write because I'm a very quick person. You know, I think quickly, mm-hmm. I act quickly, and then I move on. And mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of my stories, when you read them, you almost feel like the story's on fire. You know, it's like you got to hurry up and read it, and you got to drop it. Yeah. You know, but but those those ones that take like a lot of time, like the one that I just finished, took me like right out a year. And you know, Privacy Station was probably the most difficult personally story I've ever written because it was just so different from because it's very very slow. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. But uh. Uh. When you talk about like me being in New York, I tell my mom, I was like, I don't know what to write next. And I was like, so I need to come home and get some ideas. Uh, so you would think that if I need to go home to be kind of like around my people, you know, and then learn, you know, like what story is inside me to write next and what's important. 
you know, and, and wanting to speak for them and that kind of thing. Well, why don't I just live there? But the thing about writing is it's not just pen to paper. It's a lot of self-motivation. It's a lot of self-encouragement and things like that, because like the rejections do come. And when you were offering me so many compliments earlier, I actually thought, man, I wish I could just put him in my pocket and pull him out <laughs> on the back. <laughs> you know, and the thing about New York City is there is very much a community of writers there. Mm. You know, um, I've got several friends who they don't all publish. Again, you know, being a writer is not defined by whether you publish or not. It's not defined by whether you quit your day job or not, like we were talking earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, but I've got a lot of friends who are writers, and we just go for a walk, and sometimes we talk about, you know, how the new grocery store, the people are really rude, and, you know, I wanted arugula <laughs> as in the salad, and they pointed me to the rugeluk, which is a Jewish pastry, and, you know... <laughs> Silly things like that that have to do with living in the city or like that guy that randomly punched Rick Moranis during the oh, pandemic. God. Yeah. yeah. Like you talk about all these things that I'm sure our listeners are, are either bored or highly entertained by the examples um, that just have to do with like living there. Like people, you know, like people in other places, like people in Louisville walk along and talk about the Kentucky Derby, mm. you know, or whatever. Um, but then we also talk about writing when needed. Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of people go to AWP for. It's what a lot of people do in MFA for, which is a mighty expensive way, in my opinion, to have community. But yeah. if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what people go on podcasts and listen to podcasts like this for mm-hmm. to form community. And yeah. so the thing about it is, it's like I have to I have to be Kentucky to know what's right about and to get my ideas because I I almost always start with character. I don't necessarily start with plot or, you know, setting or thing like that. I start with a, a person pops up in my mind and usually a phrase of dialogue coming out of their head, you know, all at the same time. And, you know, so I have to, I have to, you know, touch grass if we're going to talk about Twitter memes and stuff again. You know, I have to go home every now and again, you know, touch bluegrass, so to speak, <laughs> to know what to write about, but to have the energy that it takes to continue writing, I have to be in New York City you know, or somewhere like. I see. I see. But it it seems like a yin and yang situation that, that you you kind of flow from one to the other and you feel comfortable with that sort of perspective. Uh, no, that's, that's incredibly inspiring. And I feel like you're affirming the way that I want to go about my writing. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, (laughs) No, because I, I think that like the way that you described your writing, um, makes me feel that I should really go and get that ADHD test um, because you, you really, you really lay down the, um, the way that I've always looked at the creative work and my inability to sort of wrangle with, with genre. I want to keep moving and I want to do things quickly. And I, I feel like I'm going from point A to point B and then there's no points at all. Um, but you know, to bring it back to you, I, I kind of want to wrap up here on, um, the collection, and I'm hoping that you can share a little bit about the message that you want to share with folks in terms of the climate situation and, and a lot of these big ideas that are just kind of sprinkled within this collection, because I think you do such a wonderful presentation of this. Uh, but what is it that we need to take away without giving too much away? Just read it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's hard. Like, um, like on the Fifth Fear story, every single critic type person who's read it has said it's about something different. Mm-hmm. You know, like one of my beta readers asks me if it was about like having a quarter life crisis at thirty and trying to determine what you wanted to do, and I was just like, no. <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, but it's funny. Like if you look at T. S. Eliot's Four Quartets, that's about the war. But mm-hmm. every single person who reads it pretty much walks away with something different that it's about. Yeah. And then they would go back to Elliot and be like, no, it's, that's about the war. You know? yeah. Yeah. So to me, part of what makes literature good, like if everybody who reads something comes away with the exact same thing, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe it goes back to like people who write the same thing every time. Like if you give me, you know, like, like, I don't know, like, like my erotica no, uh, novella that's coming out, it's called the life eaters. It's coming out next year. And pretty much everybody who reads it is going to come away with the same thing, which is it's set in Las Vegas and they have sex. <laughs> you know, like like, that, like some some things are pretty 
standard. But to me, whenever you're going at hard subjects, if everybody comes away with something different, I've done my job. Like the title of the collection is Tell Me What You See. It's not Tell Me What I Saw. It's, you know, I mean, these are the things that I saw as a Kentuckian living in New York the last three years. Now you read it and you tell me what you see. That's amazing. And I can't ask for a better ad for the uh, for the, the collection. I think you did a wonderful job there. And I highly recommend that folks check it out because it, it really puts into perspective a lot of the things that we were all experiencing, but through a very, uh, as I said, once again, elegant and, and very clever experimental kind of form. And I maybe would love to talk to you down the road about a bit more of the experimental facet of this, because I think one of my favorite things in hashtag Corona life, which is another piece that you included in here, was strictly visual and and very frenetic, very fast moving, but yeah. it captured something that, uh, again, anticipation that I almost wanted to forget of the of the state of of the pandemic that was that was really difficult to look at but you did it in such a way that you made me reprocess those things in a in a very uh in a very excellent character driven way but what i'm getting at is let let's leave it there and i hope that folks check out tell me what you see and last couple of questions here i'm curious if you're um if there's any content that you're experiencing right now that is inspiring you or, or lighting that spark again, whether it's books, movies, music, anything that you think is, is worth uh, exploring. You know, it's funny. It's um, uh, after I wrote this, I felt a lot of pressure to keep writing experimental because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about having a brand. And then also as somebody who does have attention deficit, writing experimental does not bore me and it constantly challenges me. But um, uh, but before that, I'd spent my whole life just writing, I won't say quiet Southern fiction, because again, a lot of my stories feel like they're in flames because um, they just move so quickly. But, you know, but just writing about just like typical Southern people. Um, but right now I'm reading the big door prize, which, yes, I have to admit, I'm reading a contemporary book after having watched the Apple television series and wanting to go back and read the, you know, like popular fiction, <laughs> but it's, I think the author's name is Emma Welsh. And it's funny because like, if you watch the show, it could just be anywhere, not South USA. And if you read the book, it's just plain old regular Southern fiction. And this Raymond Carver sort of way of, you know, like here's three sentences with the emotional bomb, you know, and you see that like in John Cheever and just other, the way that short stories kind of used to be. And, um, you know, like I've spent the last three years of my life saying these are crazy times. How can you write normal stuff? You know, like you look at like where Dolly and other artists got their art and you'd ask them and they'd say, well, you know, the times are crazy. It's our job to pick the times we have to paint crazy, you know, and here I am kind of moving back into traditional literature, but reading that book, he just has so many, you know, it's just like they're doing this, they're doing that. And then all of a sudden there's just like some normal sentence. And I feel kind of bad that I can't think of an exact example, but you know, like maybe the wife is chopping tomatoes and it's the same regularity with which she always chopped. And that's how she knew her marriage was okay. Mm. You know, like it's something like that. And like, okay, great. You know, and it goes back to just my personal preference to not have emotion outpouring. You know, like like on some level, I might as well even be British, you know, but, <laughs> but it's, like I really don't care what you ate last night. You know, I mean, I don't know. But, uh, uh, but he just has a lot of things like that in there. And they're the way, it's the way that I used to write. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm seeing how well that writing, that style of writing can look when it's been, because this novel's also been edited well. Like you can tell that, that he's gone back and done, done several versions, maybe not writing from scratch, but you know, it's just well edited. It reads smooth, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, I think that that too is why some of my stuff felt, felt like it was on fire because like it was on fire and you're touching it and it burns you because it needs to be <laughs> a little. Um, but that's got me kind of thinking, you know, maybe I dismissed traditional literature a little too soon and maybe there's more ways to kind of get inside of that, like an envelope, mm. you know, like an 
envelope can look flat and boring, but if you put cotton balls in it, it can become this rich, wide thing. You know, like it depends on what you put inside of it. And so I kind of, I don't know, I kind of want to just like write something normal and see what happens. <laughs> I love that so much. And and you've shared a couple, just in that answer, you've shared a couple of potential exercises for, for myself and, and, you know, any listeners to kind of dig into, look at the traditional, see if you can use that framework to, to kind of do something with it or, you know, try to look at what's, what's popular and, and see if you can kind of weave your voice in there in some way. Um, but lastly, the first part of it is what is on the horizon for you in terms of, of publications and, and latest projects and things like that. And the second part of it would be, what is it that you're looking to improve in your craft? You've kind of done a little yeah. bit of this, but in more concise words, if you could. Um, in my craft, I want to get better, which sounds like the stock answer, except it's my real answer. And I think that if I could hone that down, like some people are like, well, I really want to concentrate on setting, you know, on exploring flash as a medium or whatever. But um, I just, I don't know, I just want to get better. And I think if I could hone that down, I would be better, but I do keep getting better. So we'll keep working on that. And then remind me what the first question was, because I do want to answer that. What's on the horizon for publications oh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. projects? Um, I've got a short story coming out in Ellerly Queen Mystery Magazine in January. Um, I'm actually going to hopefully start publishing with them more. I've been, I would say I've been writing a lot of crime short stories lately, but turns out I'm just writing. It goes back to like that kind of Southern fiction that I was writing before. And turns out that they classify as crime because parts of the South are just inherently violent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that about covers it for the time being. But Tarina, I want to thank you so much for this lovely collection that you put together. I was just really taken with its uh, scope and ambition to cover difficult topics and difficult conversations and try to provide a, a very human lens to view these things through. And I want to thank you for your honesty about what it's like to be a writer. I mean, it's incredibly challenging, but so, so rewarding. And for being a badass, I'm, I'm incredibly inspired. And uh, I really, I really hope that we get to chat again because this was a blast. Yeah, definitely, Jaime. Yeah. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Well, and thank you for everybody listening, listening at home or subway or work or wherever they are. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful trip wherever you may be. And I'll be in touch real soon on the internet, okay? Thank you, Jaime. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye.